quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. He's the governor of the largest state in the nation. If it were a country, it would rank as the fourth largest economy in the world. And as such, the state and its leader are often in the middle of the biggest stories. I visited last week with Gavin Newsom, the governor of California in the state capital at Sacramento, to talk politics and his personal story of overcoming challenges that I think may surprise you. Here's that conversation. Governor, it's great to see you again. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for checking in. Good to be in the uh, capital of the uh, nation's state of California. The here. fourth largest now, arguably. We're still waiting for the data to fall in, but Bloomberg estimates the fourth largest economy in the world. Eat your heart out, Germany. Yeah. Is this your goal to keep moving up in your We're second moving. term? Brexit uh, helped us, and now, uh, you know. A lot of the, you know, Mishigash overseas, yes. so it's it's working in our favor <laughs> for the moment. So listen, getting Gavin Newsom on the record on stuff is not all that hard. You're constantly in the public eye. Here on this podcast, I'm more interested in sort of stories and yeah. your story. Um, so I want to just kind of explore that. And we'll get around to all the stuff that animates you in the current <laughs> debate, but before before we get there i want to i want to just go backward so, and let's start with your family i know irish immigrants yeah on your mother's side scottish is that right yeah irish scottish and uh i mean just the the the, the classic american story uh, my great 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 grandfather uh, from county cork and made his way through indiana out to san francisco my father used to say about him uh the first william newsom he said he doesn't know what came first the irish beat cop or san francisco uh-huh. <laughs> uh, where he was born in generations now i've been born my children now uh six generation californians well uh being a chicago and the other thing that came with the immigrant wave of the irish is an affinity for politics. <laughs> and I know your grandfather was a pal of Pat Brown, the yeah. governor of California back in the 60s. I guess on your mother's side, you have a uh, an aunt who was married into the Pelosi. Yeah, no. Family. Well, my yeah, my, my dad's sister married uh, Ron Pelosi, who's my uncle. So I've known the Pelosi since my birth and, uh, and that relationship well established. And Nancy and Paul's uh, nieces and nephews are my cousins. And so that's uh, that's a strong family bond. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think the journey from policeman to politician took a little more time, about 
50 years. Uh, the rest of the family is wise enough to stay out of politics, though my father dabbled in two elections, and that led to a divorce uh, at a very early age, ran for county supervisor. Interestingly, Ron Pelosi was in that race huh. uh, and made it to the board, and my father fell short. Wow. Well, and were they running against each other? They uh, technically were, and that's a whole— uh, that There's a, there's two sides of that story. Awkward or, very awkward, but yes. uh, they made up for it. And my dad's ambitions got in the way of his um, relationship with my mom. My mom was a teenage teenager when she was pregnant with me, and a few years later was on her own, came from no wealth or no status. And uh, one of the— you know, one of those classic stories, didn't complain, uh, don't explain, hardworking, two, three jobs. When I say two or three, quite literally two or three jobs until her death. Um, I'm almost now her age. She passed away uh, years and years ago, almost 20 years ago of cancer. But uh, she was the grit, the hard work, um, and you know, sort of bootstraps. You know, you're not a victim. Uh, wake up, do your job. And my father was the idealist, uh, was the sort of, not the not a bon vivant in that respect, but uh, someone who was deeply committed to public service, to the environment, to causes large and small, but the cause that was too difficult, too large. Uh, and despite just having two kids, perhaps um, and two small and different reasons, was raising his two kids and, and yeah. supporting well, my mom. Let me ask you about that because... Um you know, this is something I know something about. My, I was about the same age as you are, which is I think about five or yeah, so, officially. when my uh, my parents uh, split up. And you know, I look back at it now, and I realize this was really kind of a defining event in my life. And I went through my childhood sort of angry about the whole thing. And I, I was just wondering how it impacted on you when your folks split. I, you know, up. I, I I think I was too young to know any better. So I had no animus, no particular anger. And it's interesting when it seemed to matter to me when I was getting a little older, uh, my father started showing up. Uh, I started to excel athletically and uh, made it easier for him to show up at games and, and be there and take me to dinner after the game, bring his friends, uh, be proud, supportive. Um, we spent time a little bit in the summer. He'd check in periodically, but it, it, I just didn't know any other way. I wasn't raised differently to understand what was missing. Mm -hmm. uh, I was so young when he left. They mm -hmm. were separated even before the formal divorce. But he always maintained a respect and a relationship with my mom. And he never turned his back on us, quite the contrary. He was the classic yes before you even asked the question out of guilt. Uh, but he wasn't, in that respect, a traditional father. And so many ways... My modeling was my mother, but she wasn't home either because she's working she was all these jobs. Yeah, and she's working on the weekends. She was doing part time bookkeeping and she was a waitress. That's eventually. So, who how looked after you guys? We, we, uh, many ways raised ourselves on macaroni and cheese and Wonder Bread and peanut butter and jelly and, uh, just going you, to Joe Wagner. You look awfully fit for that. That's the, that's my standard diet. But, <laughs> I, but so, it, you know, so many kids grow up like that. And, and again, athletics, uh, uh took over. A mentorship and, and a spirit and and, um, and and ultimately created structure. You said something that strikes me, which is you said he, your dad started showing up when you started excelling at sports and he was proud of you. Yeah. I know that one thing you didn't excel at was academics. Uh, it was, and he was, uh, he, he taught for a while. He wanted to be an English. He wanted to be a writer. Uh, went to Stanford, English major. My father passed away uh, right before I became governor. And uh, his entire state is books. And when I say entire state, quite literally, there was no other monetary uh, uh, inheritance except 
books and his love of books. And here it was, his only son. He's got a daughter, my younger sister. I had a severe learning disability, dyslexia. And I say severe because on the spectrum, dyslexia has many forms and manifestations, but couldn't read, couldn't write. And to this day, you'll never see me, including a press conference today, ever read anything. I can't. I can, I guess, but I can't do it well, and I can't do it comfortably, with one exception, those torturous exceptions where a teleprompter is required, uh, and I will have to spend 100 hours on a one-hour speech just to feel comfortable with the words on the screen. When you were a child and you were in school, oftentimes you're, you know, required to stand up in front of a class or read to a class and so on. Did you feel isolated? Did you feel... I'm still that 10-year-old kid in Mr. Morris's class looking at the clock, just praying that the period would end as everyone's asked to read a paragraph of the same chapter by rows of desk and counting down the time praying to be the guy standing up and hearing everybody laugh. No, I I was scarred in this respect. I don't want to overstate it, uh, but I was in the back of the classroom, uh, my head down. I only got into Santa Clara University because of a a modest partial baseball scholarship, but that was the ticket to entry, changed my life trajectory. I was going to community college, which was wonderful and noble. I think I may have broken 950 on my SAT. I don't Hmm. sure as heck know I didn't break a thousand, but I also realized I wasn't dumb. And that took me probably 30 years to realize that I wasn't dumb. And I found other ways to overcompensate that turned out to excel in business where I had the privilege of starting a business of close to a thousand employees, pen to paper, no family, uh, no inheritance, not someone else's, literally pen to paper, raising money from investors, and then finding creative ways uh, to express myself when I finally got into politics. Were you um, teased? Were you bullied? Oh, come on. I mean, the Benton Courts uh, down there at uh, Baltimore Way, I'll never forget. Uh, trying to get, jump in the back of, uh, of people's yards in order to get home because I couldn't go down the main street because uh, the Benton Courts were waiting for me. Yeah, no, I, we had all that. and uh, Calling you stupid, calling oh, you dumb. On. Stupid and dumb were my words. They didn't even have to express them. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think, you know, those identities are hard to shake. And I think you're always that person in some ways. And then the question is, you know, how do you compensate for that? And how do you overcompensate for that? And how are you situationally aware to the attributes and the... the, the yeah, the, because the, you you created a kind of character for yourself. I mean, you started dressing in suits, I understand. Yeah, in high and, school. <laughs> and I'm, I don't say... I say this with envy, not with scorn, but I mean, you do kind of look like you sprung from the pages of GQ and so on. <laughs> yeah. So that and sports... I mean, you created an identity for yourself. I wish we could show you photos of my high school years. You'd see a completely different human being. It's, uh, and I still see that same human being. I mean, I, the sports was the, the, the savior. It was a game changer. It was my mom's grit, hard work, my dad's idealism, the sense of contribution, commitment to something bigger than yourself. But my mother's work ethic combined with, you know, having to self sort of organize my life and, and, and focus in a discipline manner and whatever it was I was trying to achieve. The time was just to be the best uh, uh, Little League baseball player, Babe Ruth baseball player, high school baseball, basketball player as well. And so all of a sudden I started realizing I'm playing a little bit better than other people. All of a sudden I started building a little confidence, self-confidence. And all of a sudden started putting my head up. I discovered it's a horrible thing. I know Ron DeSantis was just mocking, you know, hair gel. Uh, you know, literally I had uh, this sort of 
bowl cut hair. It was the Dutch boy that was the mocking and uh, discovered, you know, it just all of a sudden sort of came out of my shell a tiny bit. I don't want to overstate it. Academically got a slightly more confidence that in college I developed a hell of a lot more confidence. Um, and that was the gift of that, that small little baseball scholarship. But, but sports, I, I, have, I have deep reverence for sports. I don't dismiss it. It's not tertiary. In my, I think it, it's a foundational framework that allows kids so much more than just the academic experience, but so much wealth of experience uh, in terms of, of triumph and, and defeat and, and resilience. And, well, and, and if you're good at it, stature. And a little of that, that gives you a little more confidence if you can't find that confidence in other areas. You said that Santa Clara transformed you yeah. college. What happened there? You had the same challenges, dyslexia. Yeah. What What happened there that allowed you to turn your sort of academic life around father cause jesuits small classrooms individualized customized learning i didn't even realize what those things meant um independent uh thinking creative thinking just the the, the creative framework that that sort of spirit of saint francis uh this commonwealth this this framework that that literally just sort of for me, just everything started to connect. Everything started to make sense. And then the freedom of academics, meaning after you get those requisites out of the way, you get to major in something and you get to pick what you want to achieve or, 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 or learn and study. You picked what political science, political science and art history. And the art history came just from the visual. And I just absorbed it. I, I, I embraced the creativity, the, the sort of scene and experiencing and the freedom that I attached to that. And, and I just, then I, it drove my desire and passion for knowledge and just seeking it. And all of a sudden, despite having a hard time reading, I'm starting to read never fiction, always nonfiction. I still don't know if I've read many fiction books in my life. I claim one, but I'm not sure I was honest with myself that I ever read a fiction book. But I'm a voracious reader now of nonfiction and things that I love, things that I attach some meaning and, and interest in. You know, you said earlier that you built your own, you built these, and you did, you built these extraordinary wine bars, restaurants, real yeah. estate dealings. Yeah. I mean, the whole, in, in a, a variety of places. But you did have some help, right? Because oh, yeah. doors were opened for oh, you. Yeah. And, you know, one interesting thing about your biography is this relationship between your family through your dad yeah. and the Getty family. Oh, yeah. He was an advisor to the Getty Trust. family. He was the guy who went and negotiated when one of the Gettys famously was kidnapped. His and, godson, Jay Paul Jr., yeah, his ear was cut off in the kidnapping. Yeah. So you actually spent—you you had this weird deal where you spent your life in two different worlds. Yeah, I, and uh, and that defined my life, that relationship with my father— and his relationship with his college and high school roommates uh, that became his best friends. And that manifested eh, every two years or so in a summer vacation that was out of this world. A completely different experience. And then... Like what? Like Lifestyles of the Rich and uh, Famous percent Yachts? Yeah, and- the whole thing. I mean, just, you know, name it. Uh, you know, safaris before safari. I mean, just extraordinary experiences that that just open the world to you, but also seeing the other side of wealth, seeing the other side of drug addiction. I mean, two of my closest friends dying of one of meth overdose and one of heroin overdose. Uh, other friends that have died of heroin and fentanyl overdoses. Seeing, from that circle? From that circle, mm-hmm. from those folks. But then my mom back home saying, welcome back. 
and going right to her room and back to my paper route, back to working for Jeff Hicks Construction, back to working in Romano's restaurant as a busboy, back to taking care of all my needs. So completely contrasting worlds. Did you feel in any way out of place or inadequate when you were among the Getty crowd? I think because I had those experiences so early, it actually allows me to navigate both worlds in a way um, that is natural to me, both worlds. I mean, we were a foster family with my mom. I mean, she was, she was, I mean, uh, I, I don't want to, again, overstate it, but she struggled and we struggled and nothing was given. Um, my dad, completely separate life, a judge, um, and because of the relationship with the Getty, uh, just this sort of fantasy of traveling the world, experiences, kings, queens, uh, you know, poets, Nobel laureates, the whole gamut, uh, hearing about it, reading about it, listening to him tell us about it, and then periodically experiencing a lot of that. But then again, back to reality. Like and, Cinderella. Yeah, a little of that. And so, but it for me, I have I have no deep desire to enter one versus the other. I have deep reverence and respect for both. I have, I have, I have as, I'm as comfortable going into public housing where a lot of my best friends growing up and foster brother lived as I am going into a palace in Rome. I, I, I don't seek uh, or, or feel the need for validation in either world. And it's been uh, a gift to be able to navigate both without feeling like I'm a, uh, uh, like I, well, I don't belong in one. I certainly know that, uh, but that I'm not necessarily an intruder. But what you did become when you left college with the doors that were open, with some of the resources that you could tap into to invest in your business. And I guess you partnered up with uh, one of the the Getty. Well, we kids. had uh, 13 original investors, $7,500 each. Uh, one of them was Gordon Getty. And you can imagine the one that got most attention Gordon Getty owned mm-hmm. 4.62% of the business. But for the outsiders and for the pundits uh, that like painting the, the my Why are you looking at me? Uh, I'm not you. I know. I know. Uh, don't, don't feel defensive. Uh, but but uh, well, we, neither picture. of us should. No, so you it, it uh, painted that picture. And it's something that is hard to shake. Um, and privilege, undoubt, by relationships. But I, I'm really, I'm really proud. You know, I'm a, I'm a small business person at heart. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And it's it's carried in all the work I do in, in, in public life, and it carries my mindset. It carries my frame of reference to the world that I live in. I'm not a victim. I'm not some of the, one of those people that's woe is me. In fact, I have a bit of animus in that space, and I feel people have responsibility and opportunity, and there's hard work and grit. But the entrepreneurial mindset was the gift of dyslexia and the gift of my mother's experience and my dad's ambition. Yeah, just as an aside on the other thing, and I don't want to belabor this at all, but I, I guess I read somewhere that there was at one point in a public disclosure, you had gotten like a $2 million loan from... Oh, for a house. Yes. From... from, from yeah, for, that, was a, that was a house loan, yeah. Anyway, you were... Oh, by the way, let, let, me, let, me, let me stipulate. Yeah. One of the most impactful human beings in yeah, my yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, no, a remarkable person. But in different ways, not monetarily, in terms of conviction, being authentic, being audacious, taking risks, this this notion of you know build your life resume, um, you know this this notion you're given one chance at life, a moment in time to stand up for ideals, strike out against injustice, 
And that's what he taught me more than anything else. Uh, the support along the way has been extraordinary. Jesuits probably approved of that. And Jesuits approved. Not gay marriage when I did it. They turned their back <laughs> yeah. on me. I blame them for the teachings, but uh, not always. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Bell Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. So you were really kind of this extraordinary kind of young man in a hurry. I mean, you built these businesses at a very early age. Uh, You became, and you started getting active in politics. uh, And you had a mentor in in Willie Brown, who I, you know, famously for years, uh, lorded over this town as wow. as Speaker of the House, Speaker, Mr. Uh, Speaker. a legend, and then became mayor of San Francisco yeah. and appointed you to the board of supervisors. Now, have you, I know you had interim appointments as well, but, and then you won election to the board. Did you, at what point did you say, someday, I want to be in politics? Well, I love politics. I was in I think that was the, the suit wearing in high school. I was debating people. I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. I was sort of Carter Reagan years. So sort of shaped my entry into politics and my consciousness. Um, and that sort of blue red frame. Um, so I was deeply passionate about it, but I was taking the tack of my father, and my grandfather being supportive, not necessarily being the one. So I never saw myself. I never envisioned. It wasn't a handshake with Kennedy. And I said, one day I'll be president of the United States. I never had that ambition. It never shaped that consciousness, though I was shaped by a photo that's my most precious possession. Um, a photo signed by Bobby Kennedy to my mother, yeah. um, a picture of my father and Bobby and everything about what I want to be in my life is reflected in that photo, in that signature, um, and the two names attached to my mother and dad. And so that 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 struck a chord, a subconscious chord that I'm now connecting now later in my life. But I but I love politics. I loved civic life. But here's the journey with Jerry, uh, Willie Brown. I didn't know Willie Brown. I just opened my business, but it took 18 months to open it. 
I was pissed off, forgive my language, about the local We've heard worse on this podcast. We're not done. I can add to it. But it was taking me forever to open the business because the rules and regulations. This guy, Willie Brown, was termed out here as speaker uh, and had to run for mayor of San Francisco. And I was complaining about doing business in the city. He was a candidate. After he won, uh, he called me uh, and he said, hey, you know, he literally uh, said, I, you know, stop complaining. Shut up. I'm going to make you part of the problem. You're now the uh, going to get on the film commission. And I said, well, hell, I'm 23 years old. I like film. Yeah, this is perfect. Thank you. So I show up at City Hall to get sworn in to go on the film commission. There's dozens of other people he's swearing in. It's the beginning of his administration. He goes through, you know, so-and-so to the planning commission, so-and-so to the public utilities commission, my new DPW director. And then this young man, Gavin Newsom, you know, a small business owner. It's the new chair of the parking and traffic commission. I literally didn't know what the hell chair meant. He never mentioned that, that parking That sounds like a thankless job, by the way. Thank you. Yes. So I remember as the, the media asked He probably him, was laughing when, when he walked he away. He was laughing. He didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell me. And as a consequence, as president of the Parkgated Traffic Commission, Inspiration Desperation, I spent a year there, and we actually had some very interesting and, and uh, very vexing and controversial issues to solve. And I guess I didn't completely flop. And so when there was a vacancy on the Board of Supervisors, uh, I was tapped for that. What a gift, 20-something years old, now a County Board of Supervisors member. I was the fiscally conservative, socially liberal sort of yeah, I know you described Al Gore yourself that way. reinvent government guy. And how, how would you describe yourself now? Same guy. Same guy. Socially progressive, fiscally disciplined. We balance books. We invest in the future. Uh, because when you, ran, when you ran the progressive community in San Francisco, which is a thing unto itself, was not real receptive to you. They thought you were the developer's candidate. Yeah. You were the... Yeah. And um, <laughs> it, it leads me to this. Um, I was a small business entrepreneur. Wh- I still am. There's nothing fundamentally that's changed in my politics. Perception, illusion. I mean, it's the nature of our politics today. It's exactly what I think is wrong. Well, the focus, there's is, a big focus the on, on, on sort of social issues and cultural issues. And so that, is, Amplifies uh, that part. Is, is part of it. But I want to ask you about the politics of today. Is it possible not to buy into anybody else's sort of trope, but to be too woke? Is it possible to be too consumed by pronouns and identity well, I think and, the people complaining and, and, too, uh, and too much taking umbrage? around these things you know it seems to me that's a real question and one that i ask myself all the time i just i I have a totally different lived experience i haven't had one person come in talking to me about their pronouns i don't have it people don't come to me screaming about their agenda around uh, transgender rights it's a it's it's colored in it's it's been blown up it's been magnified and manifested as a 10x issue compared to what it is. And then you react to it and say, as the governor of uh, Utah said, never has so much been spent on so few in relationship to, as an example, the trans issue. And then people say, that's all he talks about is trans issues. These guys are ginning this up. I, I just don't understand. When you say these guys, you're talking about, I'm talking your, about your friend Ron DeSantis. And, all of them. I mean, and, in some ways, and we've fallen prey to it. A lot of folks on the left. I've seen some people I admire, uh, sort of this more mainstream center, centrist that have fallen prey to this, as if this is the only agenda. This is all we're talking about. And I wonder, how much is it in relationship to reacting to the, the just sort of deep 
demonization coming from the right, which as a human being, I'm naturally going to react to someone being bullied. Uh, you know, my mom worked for Aid to Adoption of Special Kids, the DeBolt family, people with intellectual uh, and physical disabilities. I've been deeply involved. In as the father of one, I appreciate it. Yeah. God bless you, man. It's a, and so when Ron DeSantis decides to go after the Special Olympics, you know, I'm done. I don't like bullies. I don't like people demeaning others. And so what you're seeing across the spectrum is vulnerable minorities being targeted by these with a zest for demonization using this for political purposes, coloring things in. 350 million Americans. And what's Fox worried about? There's 350 million stories. The only stories they seem to gather is someone who's detransitioning from a transgender surgery. God bless all of them. But this is not what drives the work we do every single day. And by the way, if it was a big issue, California would be talking about this 24-7 exclusively. We're not. We're focusing on a million other issues. And so I am not... I'm pushing back against this trope and narrative, and this anti-wokeism is just racism in disguise. It's the welfare queen from Reagan. It's it's Nixon's, you know, it's all the Southern strategy. Nothing new here. It's the one thing it has in common in every respect, women, minorities, being attacked and demonized and used under this broad trope of wokeism. And it's uh, it, uh, it sickens me. We'll talk more about that, but I, I want to get back to your narrative because one of, one of the things that you read about you in that period of your life, that early period, running your business, you're on the board of supervisors, that you were very, very busy all the time. And you mentioned your mom dying of cancer. And there was, I read that she she had de- she decided to engage in assisted uh, suicide, suicide to, yeah. to, to put a an end to her Worst day of my her life. suffering. Worst day of my life. That she had to leave a message on your answering machine because you were so busy. She wanted to let you know, I've chosen this day. This date. Hi, honey. Hope you're well. Uh, next Thursday, just letting you know, hope you're around. Uh, you know, it, uh, it's just cloaked in guilt and, uh, you know, despair, uh, loneliness. Um, uh, she sacrificed everything for us. But I, I, uh, I, I went with her uh, and I was part. It was before you know, full disclosure, before legal suicides were, and before they were legalized. Mm-hmm. That's why I was a fierce champion when I came up here in yeah. Sacramento to, to legalize them. And we had a courageous doctor that had the decency, the decency and character to support her. She was suffering so badly. And so she was able to pick a time and date. And I was there with my sister and she was going through old photos and we're there in a private bedroom with her. And my sister couldn't take it. She just started crying and ran out. And I had to decide what to do. And I was there for her last breaths. And I wouldn't recommend that for anybody. Yeah. And there right after, just as the last breath went out and sort of touching her and it just this hope, you know, and so it was a profound and consequential moving uh, experience. And uh, she never liked me being in politics. Thought it would destroy me. She loved me too much. She loved the, how we were doing a business and how we were growing the businesses from literally one part-time employee, Pat Kelly, to we had you know, close to a thousand folks at the time. And, yeah, but I mean, and, the, uh, it also was consuming. Was, yeah, consuming, but she saw what it did to her relationship with her husband who ran for office and lost, and he was distraught about that and left uh, for a new career, was devastated by it. She saw it's ripped everybody up. She's close to the Pelosi. She's seen the consequences, the political life, and- and just wanted something better for her son. And so I was living two realities. It wasn't necessarily following her path. I was trying to follow my own path and um, and didn't do enough for her. And um, breaks my heart to this day. And I never thanked her enough. And I never appreciated her until I had kids uh, at the level that I appreciate her now, four young kids myself. And 
and uh, had the chance with my dad, had the chance with my dad. Had, he was there election night with me and he held on four years ago and then passed away before my inaugural. Uh, but I never had that privilege with my mom. I have to ask you because I have to ask you. Mm-hmm. In that same period, you got married. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you got married. Now to I a, know why you asked you twice. A, so, yeah. a prosecutor named Kimberly Guilfoyle. Correct. I saw a cover of Harper's uh, Bazaar of yeah. the two of you and the head captured, very elegantly dressed, yeah. the new Kennedys. Yeah, that was the, a winner. <laughs> the new uh, Kennedys. So I have to ask you, like, what? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how? how? Uh, self-flagellation, just stupidity. It was a it was a mock photo. There were two photos. I'm not talking about we the photo. I'm talking about the wife. The, well, the photo was even more humiliating. I, <laughs> I was on the floor. I mean, it's I was I was no, I, outraged no, and fierce. It was a it was a kind of a gag thing. And they actually printed it. Uh, lesson learned in my life. Lots of lessons I have. But people learned. have. A, I mean, it's very well, hard to reconcile. She, she was, was a different. Come on, she was a different person. She was working for DA Hallinan, a progressive DA. Kamala Harris just beat uh, the progressive DA. We were close with Kamala. She knew her well, and she was spending a lot of time in Democratic circles. Uh, she had an amazing father, immigrant from Ireland, hardworking, middle-class guy, small developer in the neighborhoods, more, most enthusiastic supporter of my campaign. God, what an amazing human being he was. He passed a few years after we divorced. Um, she had her ambition. I had just got elected mayor, and, and uh, days after I elected mayor, she moved to New York for a court TV gig, and then eventually with Ailes at Fox and Look, I got to know all those guys at Five and Hannity, all those guys. And I start to understand the BS, the performative nature of all these folks. Well, what appealed to her, do you think? Uh, uh, ambition, her own pride. And she's got a prosecutorial mindset. She always had that. She's whip smart. And uh, she fell prey I think, uh, the culture at Fox. And in a deep way, she would disagree with that assessment. She'd perhaps suggest she found the light. Obviously, we have contrasting points of view. Made for, though, an interesting, and David, this is very relevant, relationship with the Trump administration, which actually was probably the most constructive democratic relationship uh, with President Trump of any of the uh, governors of any of the Was states. she an intermediary? Or? wasn't, but there was a subtext to it. Uh, there was a sort of foundational uh, relationship that by definition was established uh, and curiosity, I'm sure, for Trump as well. And, uh, and that allowed the foundation to be laid that advantaged this state profoundly during the pandemic. And I went to great lengths to develop that relationship in order to develop what became one of the more successful, I think, uh, approaches to the, the COVID epidemic. So you guys kept in touch? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Friendly. And- we was, it ended friendly. It started friendly. Uh, and uh, that's- uh, So I, I have to ask, just, you know, obviously she's now dating Donald Trump Jr., but what fiance, did you- Fiance. What right. did you- uh, Fiance, yes. I, have to, I believe so. Yeah. 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 Not just Have dating. you been invited to the I, uh, wedding? Well, uh, I, I, I'm very busy. Uh, <laughs> but when they, uh, when you saw her at the Republican convention, yeah, hard. You know, these things are hard. Of yeah. course, they are. I'm human. Uh, hey, we didn't have kids, thankfully. Yeah, loved her father. Her mom died very young from Puerto Rico. We were different people back then, and uh, that uh, was a gateway. What a gift that relationship to the most magnificent, extraordinary human being period, full stop, that I've ever met. And that's my current wife, four incredible kids, and a rock star wife whose causes I adore and uh, whose passion is reflected in the work I try to do here. Who just, we should note, courageously testified Brutal. at the uh, trial of Harvey Weinstein yep. because she was one of his She victims. was raped, yeah. She was sexually assaulted by him. 
And, uh, and did you know that you no, must have known that nope, you didn't know nope, the story? I had a, I'll never forget. Uh, I saw him, I think it was a Sago, a some event and he came right up to her and I was, I was struck by that interaction. And I asked her what's going, what's happening. She implied she never, she had a hard time talking to anyone about it. She was very, and understandably so very emotional in that courtroom. Well, she had the courage. I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people that had similar experiences that didn't have the courage she had. And for, and I understand why the way she was treated in the press, Variety Magazine, the press exposing her, even though she was a Jane Doe, almost enthusiastically, and how the right decided to weaponize that as well. And as they do that, tearing other people down. I deeply understand why people don't do it. Makes me admire people that do even yeah, more, and a- particularly a- her. Absolutely. So when you were mayor, I just want to ask you a couple of things about that. And I'm very partial to mayors. I think it's the most, <laughs> it's actually, I should ask you, I mean, how does the job of mayor compare to being the job of governor? Because it's the closest thing to yeah. people. I think the two most worthwhile jobs in American politics are mayor and president. Because, <laughs> I get it. you know, and, and I think people relate to their mayors and presidents differently. Yeah. Uh, cause and effect. Good decisions, bad. There's a pragmatism to being mayor. There's not an idealism. You, you can't really get away. I mean, that's where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. I mean, if I announced my Democratic plan to sweep the streets, people would look at me like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? Everything then comes the state and federal level through that lens of red and blue. It's a pragmatism, hard-headed pragmatism. So it it suited my entrepreneurial energy. Um, I was someone who just wanted to get things done, willing to take risks. Again, that's a dyslexic mindset, the small business mindset. And um, you know, it was a great book, If Mayors Ruled the World. It's worth a read. Yeah. And it goes to your point, sort of bottom yeah. up, not top down, this notion of that pragmatism that gets lost in the prism of I this, think often the best politicians in America. You um, you ran, homelessness was a huge issue. Number one. And you ran on a plan to deal with it. It was controversial because you emphasized housing. I think it's, um, what was the slogan? Care, ca- not cash. Care, not cash. Well, we were handing out cash with no questions asked. It uh, was a debacle. It was a failure. It was self-evident to anyone walking the streets in 2002, 3, 4, 5, 6. Uh, it was a huge success, Care Not Cash. We were able to convert the care, uh, the cash to guaranteed access to service, biggest expansion of housing in our city's history. We reduced the street population by 33%. We had a phenomenal short-term success for almost two and a half, three years. Near the end of my term, we started to see the numbers go back up. It was one of a suite of strategies and solutions, by no means the only strategy, quite the contrary, but a very meaningful and pragmatic one. You did, obviously, that's been a priority still for you as governor. It's a stubborn problem. I mean, you, no one in San Francisco would say, well, thank God we've solved that. Well, I was, I was mayor well over a decade ago. No, I understand, but I'm not, I'm not, all I'm saying is it's a disgrace, the homeless issue in California. We own it. We own it. I own it. It's a disgrace. When I got here, there was no homeless strategy, no homeless plan. When I was mayor, I never even thought of calling Governor Schwarzenegger or even uh, Governor Brown. It didn't even occur to me. It was completely the responsibility of cities and counties. What has changed dramatically in the four years that I've been governor, not 40, just four, feels like longer, I bet. is we have a strategy, we have a plan. When I got here to Governor Brown's credit, at the end of his term, to be fair, he appropriated because the big 13 largest city mayors demanded it, $500 million for the state's approach. First time the state had written a check to address this issue because the cities clearly can't do it at all. That $500 million is now $15.3 billion. 
with the first accountability plans ever required of the cities and counties, um, and now targeted interventions across the spectrum from mental health housing, not just ongoing sports, targeting encampments and the like. Here's the challenge. When in the middle of COVID, things were at status quo ante, everybody backed away, the encampments got worse and worse. And so we're now backing in uh, to try to make up for those two years loss. I recognize the enormity of task. I recognize the responsibility. I recognize people's right to be angry, to be outraged. And I recognize the responsibility for cities and counties to be our partners in this. The state has never done more, including paving the way for the most comprehensive mental health reforms since Ronald Reagan's reforms in the 1960s, mm. which led in many respects to the problems we have today. You mentioned it earlier. Another thing that you were nationally noted for back in your days as mayor was you, uh, at a time when the Bush administration was actively pursuing ballot initiatives around the country to ban same-sex marriage, you started conducting marriage ceremonies at City Hall, and it created quite a firestorm. I think even Nancy Pelosi said to you, you know, I agree with you on all this, but man, this is creating a- uh, My party issue. was worse than the other party. I mean, they ran, didn't walk away from me. People didn't want to be photographed. I, we, we, understandably, I think uh, you can it, say it. I think you. you no, it's across the board. It was, uh, and it's it's perfectly fine. I mean, I, I'll, I'll never tell the stories, but I had some phone calls that were just jaw dropping. People that I were heroes of mine that told me to basically go pound sand and who the hell you think you are. Um, so those were those were some dark days. Um, and then you had folks out there <laughs> quick to blame the outcome of the election, even though John Kerry's position was consistent with George Bush's. Uh, so I've been on, I've been on this, you know, we, we married 4,036 couples for those that don't know in the winter of love in 2004, Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin have been together 50 years and decided to do a same sex marriage, uh, uh, for them. And we were going to file a lawsuit against the state to talk about the unconstitutionality. And then there was a backlash to it and there was an initiative on it. Well, and- what happened at first, we, the courts, we were told the courts are likely to shut us down. And then the judge came back, said there's no irreparable harm being done. And the question was, well, do we continue to allow these marriages? And again, 4,036 uh, couples, 46 or so states, six countries came in and put a human face on this. And it, it lit this conversation anew because it put it in people's, um, you know, put them in on the screens. All of a sudden they had to sort of adjudicate their thinking without an abstract. It was about Uncle Bob and there, there was no images that could be exploited during that month, which was the extraordinary thing. And it led to a backlash. Absolutely. It led to Proposition 8. It led to decisions uh, overturn, progress, and backlash. Uh, but I'm very proud of principled stance. Good people can disagree. And uh, it's just my, I have my approach Back to my approach, my mother. I mean, this notion you get one moment in time, you get one life. Back to Gordon. Um, stand for something. Have your courage, your convictions, principles. And I'm not going to be the guy that's the ex-mayor talking about what it could have, should have. Yeah, no, but and you've been, you know, one of the things that you've done is you've called people out in your own party and certainly the other party when you think they they lack courage. And it and I get called out every day, so I well, understand no, no, but I, but here's what I want to ask you. Do you look back on your career? Are there things where you say, you know what, I wish I would have done more, or I wish I would have always, done? Always, of course. I mean, do, do you, I mean, do you always life, measure up to that standard? I know there's no greater critic of, my, of me than me. No one comes close. No one, even uh, those uh, wing nuts at uh, Fox don't come close. To my own personal. Well, what is your, what's your biggest regret? What, I have a, a million. I mean, I'm only asking for and, one. 
No, I mean, I the, the personal professional regrets, I expressed one as it relates to my mother. That's life. Uh, we're all experts, geniuses in hindsight. And so are the process. It's one of iteration. It's one of, you know, humility. I mean, through COVID, humility, understanding, capacity, maturity, perspective, yeah. uh, learning yeah. um, and iterating. But you know what? I don't regret. I don't regret standing up for ideals. I don't regret having the backs of vulnerable communities. I'll never regret standing up for people that are being bullied by others, that are being demeaned and others. That's the one cause of my life. That's and do my you, why. And do you think, that, was there ever a case where you thought, I should have done more? And in terms of that, I'm really proud of, of, of not shying away from those fights and, you know, and being criticized for doing that. Uh, too much, too soon, too fast, or, you know, you know, uh, patience, young man, all that. Uh, again, uh, I, uh, I'm a, you know, student of letters in Birmingham jail, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, that's a master class and uh, kind of activism that I think we need in this country. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. On the subject of, of growth and lessons, another thing that happened when you were mayor, in between your marriages, you had a relationship with somebody who worked for you, happened to be the wife of a of a political, yep. out your old campaign manager and stuff. It was a tempest for sure. Yeah. Uh, One of the great regrets of my life. I was very expressive about that, very honest and forthright, perhaps too honest and forthright. I was, uh, I, I hit that head on. And uh, one of the things I'm really proud of is uh, relationships still with, with, uh, uh, with uh, my former staffer, meaning the mm-hmm. husband, uh, who I have just enormous respect for and, uh, and, and, and pride that we've uh, maintained that relationship I, of I, respect and friendship. I, I have a particular reason for asking it, and I want to ask it in conjunction with one other episode, which was during the pandemic when you went to the French, French Laundry, Laundry, this yeah. very e- yeah. elite, very good restaurant, by the way. Yeah. I've had the opportunity yeah. to go a couple of times. And you violated your own pandemic uh, the spirit of what I was saying, not the letter of the law. We didn't break any uh, local or state laws, meaning the rules that were set up, the restaurant was open, but I absolutely broke the spirit of what I said. And here's what I said. I said that people, when they go out to dinner, and by the way, we were encouraging people to go out to dinner uh, at the time, but do it safely, um, to stay within three household cohorts. And there were five or six at that table. I should have gotten up and left. I own that. Always own that. Here's my question. Yeah. These things were self-inflicted. Yeah. And because you've had a very, very impressive political career, but these were sort of moments of self-sabotage. And I, I'm just wondering. I, I think I'm, I'm, maybe others have, uh, are perfect. I'm not. I mean, I've honestly, done 518 of these and I haven't found the perfect person yeah, yet. But others may be more perfect. Yeah. Uh, I'm a work in progress. I'm a human being. Um, 
really proud of the work we did on COVID. Proud of the fact that, uh, you know, made a mistake. It was a 50th birthday. Uh, we were saying go out and eat. Went down. It was a larger table. Should have gotten up. And you own that. But I don't know if it was like, I understand what you're saying. There's a sort well, of Well, you know why? Because you said earlier, of, of you said earlier, it took me 30 years to accept the fact that, yeah, I'm smart. I'm capable. I'm able. I'm all those things. And so we all have a little bit, I do, of this kind of imposter thing where you sort of like, yeah, I'm here and everybody seems to think I should be. Yeah. But what if I'm not? What if I'm not that person? No, I, I think it, I don't know that either of those incidents were indicative of that. I think they were indicative of, of, uh, of just uh, human shortcomings. Um, I'm in, I live in a microscope. This is 24 seven. Um, I could assure you anything else that I've ever done wrong would have been exposed, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and amplified. I've lived this for 20 something years, 25 yeah. years in this bubble, a microscope. I think your I mom would say, I told you so. The luxury. Yeah. But it, no, well, she was, I think she was wrong because I, she didn't have the privilege of, of uh, seeing a 10 year old girl tug on me and saying, thank you for giving me two mommies. She didn't have the experience of a, a gruff old guy yeah, at man. the Missoula airport in Montana saying, hey, come here, man. Are you that mayor of San Francisco? And big conservative guy saying, I couldn't stand my son. But you know what? Took me a few years. But after what you did, I love my son. And he gives me a hug. Those are I, I, gifts I, beyond I, words. I know beyond exactly words. what you beyond mean words. because I had the opportunity to work with President Obama on things like the Affordable Care Act. And you have people come up to you on the street and say, Thank you. You saved my life. You saved my kid's life. They have tears in their eyes. Yeah. And you think that's as... And that know. makes up for saying a red line or something. And you mm -hmm. shouldn't have said a red line. Meaning whatever that red line, literally or figuratively, I mean, that's a reflection of some of the foreign policy in the past. But the point being, um, we all are prone uh, to at times not be our, not be who we are or our best selves, and uh, and that's reflected in the in those two instances. So you you, you uh, in 2010 you thought about running for governor. Jerry Brown yeah. uh, ran for governor. Yeah, that wouldn't have been a sensible is, race for you to run. Yeah, I was wise to get and out of that. And so you <laughs> spent eight years as lieutenant governor of California. And I'm reminded of what John Nance Garner said about the vice presidency that it isn't worth a bucket of warm. I think it's translated now into spit, but I think he used spit, yeah. a different word. Was it? Yeah, uh, but. The point was uh, was the same, which is you don't really do much. And I'm thinking here, here you are. Yeah. You're someone who is used to driving stuff, yeah. and now you're kind of standby equipment. I know you have responsibilities. You probably right. made the most of it. Yeah. Those must have been hard years for you. I think the first few months were, and then it was the gift and all gifts. Uh, my wife having kids, yeah, diving deeper, learning, um, learning from the best. I mean, I what a gift of life I've had. I mean, Willie Brown, former speaker, mayor, and Jerry Brown. Yeah. Those are my two mentors that I worked with, even if they weren't direct mentors, just to yes, absorb. Yes, you went from Brown to Brown. Brown to Brown and learn from their mistakes, learn from their successes, uh, learning from Nancy Pelosi. I mean, that's that's next yeah. level. Yeah. John Burton. I mean, this is this is a rough and tumble. I know Chicago's a tough place, but San Francisco in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, this is uh, you can get through all this and get back up, really resilient, govern a state as complex as California. I think that's uh, what a gift. And well, so the, the lieutenant governor years allowed me one other gift to is probably it. having your kids while you're lieutenant governor so yeah. you can spend more time with yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a book uh, that I was very proud of and yes. did a, I did a little uh, TV show, which, uh, you know, we, uh, had some fun with Al Gore on current TV. Uh, people forget that, but a lot of people forgot current TV. <laughs> I, I love uh, J 
Jerry Brown. I think he's one of the most I I I got a chance to cover him a little in 1980 when he ran for president, and I've had a number of, including a podcast with him, and I think he was an American original. <laughs> but I can't imagine that you know he's a guy who wanted like a no, partner. God, the opposite. Yeah, no, I I'm still waiting for the <laughs> phone to ring after eight years, but that's fine. Uh, and one that's also part of the journey, and that then. And look, that's a, it was a, it was in the time, as I said, the first year was tough, a transition from being mayor, particularly mayor of a city that's also a county and it's a stronger mayor position and uh, having different points of view at times as it relates to economic development, other issues uh, with Governor Brown and homelessness certainly was driving a lot of my frustration uh, even then. But what a, what a extraordinary American um, uh, American period, but also what an extraordinary elected official uh, that went through many different iterations of his life, uh, evolved from the 1-800-WE-THE-PEOPLE, um, where he was sort of the original Bernie Sanders yeah. uh, single-payer guy to the one that left as the more moderate conservative. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's well, an interesting it, well, When you serve 40 years apart, you got a lot of you got a lot of transition there. Exactly. You got elected in 2018 to succeed him. Yeah. And right in the smack in the middle of it comes the pandemic. Yeah. We talked about the French laundry thing, but but what did you learn from what what did that experience teach you? I I mean I I think it it changed the expectations in many respects in terms of what we look to our governors to solve. I think you become a mayor of a state, not just a governor of a state. Back to this mayoral mindset uh where COVID, everything sort of focused in on these subnationals, on the governors, on how governors handled it, and the authority that was vested through the executive orders, through the proclamations, both federal and state, and the expectations to keep people safe during a very challenging time where we didn't know what we don't we know today. So, um, look, that that whole experience, uh, I, I still have to process. Uh, but one thing, uh, again, the word to use is humility throughout that process. I think a lot of people are rewriting history. I think. Even Trump called out DeSantis for rewriting his own history, uh, which the media seemingly has lazily accepted DeSantis' narrows of things. Um, a lot of us did very similar things for a very extended period of time because of the power of the unknown and the power and potency of this virus that was taking out people and lives, was taking up beds. And we were in this emergency mindset for an extended period of time. And the trauma that we're still unpacking, that stacking of stress that we're still unpacking is being felt across a myriad of other issues, social unrest and just lack of trust in institutions. It's accelerated some good things and obviously accelerated a lot of the divide we're experiencing today. California has the strongest gun laws in the country. Yep. And it's made a difference. You also have per capita the lowest rate of gun violence, but you just had two mass shootings yep. hard on the heels of each other. Yeah. Tell me what, what you think has to happen. Because you know one of the things I fear is through all these years of debate, we've seen this um, proliferation of guns to the point where we now have like 400 million. Yeah. We have more per every man, woman, child in this country. And that's a hard thing to control at some point. Correct. So what's the answer? Well, I think California's offered that. It's a national model. 37% lower gun death rate than the rest of the nation. 58% lower gun death rate as it relates to our children. California's led the national conversation from May 1967 when Ronald Reagan 
under curious circumstances, signed some of the first uh, gun safety laws in the nation to the leadership in the assault weapons ban in 89, even before the national ban in 94. California's led the way across the spectrum on waiting periods and ages on large capacity magazines, background checks for bullets and ammunition, not just for guns. What we've done- So you have that all in place. And these guys, apparently, I don't know about the second shooter, but obtain these guns legally. Yeah. I mean, no no one- Gun violence didn't end in California uh, when we advanced these laws, but went down between 1993 and 2017 by 55%. California has 67% lower gun death rate than, than places like Texas. So we know gun safety saves lives, and we know more guns lead to more suicides and more officers that are killed in the line of duty. We know that. It's not Do you debatable. think what the failure of other states to act has of course. endangered California? The federal government needs to get its act together. They need to do their job. But I'm not here to, you know, I'm not naive about the cards that are dealt. I'm not complaining or blaming the previous five I mean, there's really no, there, you know, you saw how difficult it was to get a very yeah. modest yeah. It's gun a, law it's a, We've accepted this. This is normal. We've come to, hey, I have kids died. So I, that's it, Bob. How you doing? Uh, hey, look, oh, the trans community over there. Look, wokeism, DEI, ESG, CRT. Hey, look, over there. I mean, it's it's just comedy. And we bob and weave and we play their same game. Illusion rules. This, you know, these guys on the other side of, are just running circles around us. And, uh, and I'm not going to allow it to be normalized. I'm going to continue to pound and continue to fight and, uh, you know, continue to lament. I mean, I, I think what it took the national news 24 hours to turn the page on Monterey Park and then it turned the page on Half Moon Bay. No, and it's, that, it's that lasted stunning. 12 and, hours. you know, and I have to say, I live in Chicago. We have blocks from where I live, gun violence every day, young people losing their lives. And it's just, day. it's just, and I spare me, everybody, on this that it's not about guns, it's about goddamn guns. Mental health is prevalent in every damn place in the world. Yeah. Social medias right. and video games are more dominant in some yeah. parts of we the world. We have book. 46% of the privately owned guns in this yeah. country in the, in the world. We have 5% of the population. And then you get population. idiots like DeSantis. Are getting, they're doing open carry laws with no permits and no training. Doesn't even have a training requirement that leads to more homicides, will lead to more homicides. Is it any wonder that these red states have a bigger crime problem than the blue states? More murder rates. But the Democrats can't even get on the damn message to get on the offense on that because we continue to be on the defense on wokeism and all these other nonsensical wars. So Forgive um, me for getting ticked off, but there's real issues, and then there's all these BS things that are just clouding the issues. So if the word DeSantis were a drinking game, I'd be absolutely plastered no. by the end of Let's this podcast because you've invoked him uh, so many times. I think he's a, he's a, the poster child for what's wrong with the Republican Party and what's wrong with America today. You ran some ads during your reelection campaign that got a lot of attention because they didn't run in California. They ran in Florida. They ran in Texas, where Governor Abbott is. And, and it raised the issue of what are you up to? Yeah. And I mean, the obvious question of are you setting yourself up to now or in the future run for president? I, I set myself up to sleep at night, set myself up to express myself outraged, as I mentioned a moment ago. You go after two guys who are potential presidential contenders. I mean, DeSantis is well, now me... considered at least a, a a close to a co-favorite with yeah, Trump. Yeah, we need to get aggressive. I mean, why are we on the defense reacting to Ron DeSantis? I want to wake people up to what the hell's going on. The rights that we've fought so hard for the last half century being rolled back in real time. This rights regression is real. Civil rights, you know, voting rights, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender rights, what's happening with contraception, abortion. These guys are claiming freedom. And you have a 10-year-old girl that's raped by her father. 
and has to bear her brother or sister. That's freedom. They're banning books, banning private speech, not just public free speech, attacking the Special Olympics, National Hockey League. You saw the college board roll over to DeSantis. I mean, it's the rank racism, the othering, the demeaning of vulnerable people. How the hell could I not do that ad? When he hit the Special Olympics, that's when I said enough. With all due respect to my party, we're not on the offense. We're on the defense. And I think the worst thing that happened in the midterms is that we think we're doing all right. Meanwhile, these guys are running the tables on us. Look at what's happening in all of these states. And the rights that are being rolled back, they're succeeding in all of these states. Democrats need to wake up. We're not on the offense. We're sitting here playing defense, saying perhaps we are too woke. Let's stipulate that your, your analysis here. But the question I have on the table is, if you feel that strongly about it, don't you have an obligation then to step up and say, because parties are led. Parties are not hectored into doing the right thing. They're led into doing the right thing by whoever is the figure. First of all, do you think the president is doing enough on it? And secondly, do you see yourself in that role? No, I think the president's, I, I, it's been a master class the last two years. I mean, I, it's been extraordinary, this president, in terms of the legislative accomplishments with slim majorities, a master class. Uh, I couldn't be more proud of him. Absolutely, he's doing his job. But, you know, I, maybe I'm a little old-fashioned. I remember Bobby Kennedy in the eulogy, eulogizing his brother at the Democratic Convention. And the entire speech that Bobby gave after 20 minutes standing ovation, he finally was able to say a word, was, my brother— JFK never would have accomplished a damn thing without all of you, the party. And our party needs to have the back of our president, needs to be more aggressive, needs to be more proactive. And I think the party is bottom up. It's not top down. It's not the DNC selling down its vision. It's all of us states that are that are, are the front lines of these rights battles. And we need to call it out. Governors have an obligation. I was deeply involved with the DGA, raised millions of dollars for other governors. I'm trying to I try to express myself, not just with that ad, the abortion ads I put up, 20 billboards across the country, the work I'm doing with ads across uh, other states like Texas. Trying to call this out, trying to wake people up, trying to get back on the offense and not just play this defense and not fall prey uh, to these guys shaping the conversation as they do over and over and over again and being defensive and reactive to their terms and not getting back on our terms. I had Tim Ryan on this podcast last week who was as reverential for the president as you, but said he felt he shouldn't run and he, for only one reason which is he's 80 years old. He'd be 82 when he took over, 86 at the end of that term. Is that reasonable? Bobby Kennedy said it best. What the world needs are the qualities of youth, not a time of life, but a state of mind. I saw uh, how successful and progressively minded with hard-headed pragmatism to boot Jerry Brown was around the same age. I see people like Willie Brown are at it today. Although he quit just about at the same age the president is now. Uh, It's about teams. He had to, of course. Ron Klain is about as good as a chief of staffs has been in decades. I mean, what these guys have been on their team, what they were able to okay. accomplish and the folks they put on the playing field. It's not just about uh, who's at the head. It's about the people they put around them and his judgment, his character, his decency. Um, I, I am enthusiastically all in on his reelection. Let and, me uh, let me just finish with you gave this a very, very passionate state of the state address. And you talked about some of this, and you said all across the nation, anxiety about social change has awakened long dormant authoritarian impulses calling into question what America is to become freer and fairer, reverting to a darker past. Instead of finding solutions, these politicians void of any new ideas, pursuing power at any cost, prey upon our fears and paranoias. We're sitting here in the state of California, home to the social media universe. How much culpability 
do those platforms bear for spreading a lot of what you're complaining about here, the algorithms that drive people into these dark corners, do they not bear some culpability? Well, that's why California is leading. We did a privacy initiative. It was codified in the ballot. We actually had some of the most progressive child safety rules as it relates to protecting child privacy, children's privacy. But you accept, right, that this has been a big part of the a problem. That's why we've been leading on the, the solution. So we're not just identifying. So should, they, should we be doing that nationally? Should there be I much? Mean, by definition. Future happens here first, where America's coming to traction. So this power of emulation. Have you had these conversations? With Ad the, nauseum with Speaker Pelosi directly in his No, but also office. with the with the leaders of the industry. Well, the leaders of the industry had strong objection to a lot of the things that we've signed and a lot of the work we've done. So Yes, by definition. Look, I think they broadly understand where, where, where things are going. They've seen it around the rest of the globe. Uh, they see the rules in Europe versus the United States. They think see things where they're going. But I don't, look, um, I got a bigger problem, um, not with the platforms. I have a bigger problem with the people that are creating the content for these platforms and the networks that should be curating, that are not curating, that are expressing themselves uh, uh, similarly, not dissimilarly, to these platforms and weaponizing grievance and, uh, and and dividing this country. And yeah, I'm calling out the Murdochs and Fox. Yes, I'm calling out these platforms. I guess I'm calling out Jesse Waters. What a joke that guy is. I mean, Papa Pauly. Papa Pauly. Listen to what he was talking about before Paul Pelosi was almost killed. Listen to the way they demean people, talk down to people. They, they create characters, cartoon characters. Look at what this guy Tucker Carlson does every single night, the racial priming. These folks need to be called out by name. This is a serious moment in history, and people need to be a hell of a lot more serious about it, and Democrats need to wake up and not be on the damn off defense on all this stuff and playing into this crap that's coming from these red states and get back and wake up to what's happening. They're winning 25, 26 states, rolling back half a century of progress in real time, and we're not damn focused on it. We're focused on all this other shit and crap that's on the other national screens. Meanwhile, these other guys are running the tables. Forgive my language. No, I'm no. Intense, you but promised I me that kids. we'd get there, and we're right at the end of the podcast, and you, you said, got in right under the, the wire. the S word. My, yeah. my dad used to charge me a dollar, so I'll, <laughs> I'll send it to him. Governor, charity. it's great to be with you. <laughs> Hope to have more conversations down the line. Thanks for the opportunity. Welcome, out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.